The next reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first 11 verses in your pew Bible that be on page 954. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, the unrighteous? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This morning we consider, or continue on in our consideration of Paul's letter uh, to the church at Corinth, the first letter that we have in the Bible. We know Paul had sent other letters, but uh, the one that we're considering this morning is the first one that we have. Uh, so far, we've seen in chapters 1 to 4, uh, Paul is dealing with divisions that have risen up in this church. Uh, we saw last week in chapter 5 that Paul is dealing with a man who was living in gross immorality. He wants the church, we saw, to remove this uh, sinful man before the, the leaven of his sin spreads through the whole congregation. And if you remember there where we finished off last week, uh, Paul clears up uh, any confusion that there might be regarding his instructions. So this is where we finished last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Paul says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So now here at the beginning of chapter 6 in the passage John just read for us, Paul is going to keep going on some of those same themes. Uh, ideas like judging and the relationship uh, between the righteous in the church and the unrighteous outsider. And so what I'd like to do with the time we have this morning is actually start at the end of our passage 
And look there in verses 9 and 11. There Paul shows us the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. And then I'd like to go back and consider verses 1 to 8 and to see what exactly was going on in the Corinthian church and what it is that Paul says about it. So let's start at the end and, and we'll see the difference here between the righteous and the unrighteous. So reading again there, beginning in verse 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so the first thing we see there is that there's a certain group of people who will not, Paul says, inherit the kingdom of God. He uses that phrase in verse 9 and also again in verse 10. Uh, this idea of inheriting the kingdom is a, is a shorthand for experiencing God's salvation. It's a shorthand, it's a way of, of describing what it means to experience God's ultimate salvation. It's a way of speaking of living life in the new heavens and the new earth, a, a world made new someday in the future by God for his people. And Paul says there are certain kinds of people who will not experience that who will not inherit that kingdom, who will not be citizens of that city. There are certain kinds of people who will not experience eternal life, and they won't be in the new world that God is making. And then he gives us a list of exactly what kinds of people. A couple of things to point out here. First, notice that he's not giving us a list of behaviors, but he's giving us a list of kinds of people. That is to say, you wouldn't really call someone a thief unless he sort of regularly and consistently was involved in theft. Right? You don't necessarily call someone a drunkard if they just got drunk once. Instead, it seems that Paul's talking about people who are engaged in certain repeated patterns of behavior here. The second thing to notice is that there are a couple of things on this list that have become particularly controversial lately. So some things that Paul mentions are probably pretty obvious. So if you've read the Bible, you've come to church, you're probably not shocked to see the Bible condemn something like drunkard, you know, or greedy, or an adulterous person, right? Those are the things we'd expect to find on the list. But there's one phrase there at the end of verse 9 that's drawn a lot of attention uh, in the wider uh, community lately, and that is, as it's rendered here in the ESV, men who practice homosexuality. So there are some people who want to argue that we've misunderstood Paul here, that that's actually not a good translation, that we've misunderstood his thoughts. And he's not actually intending for us to believe that men who practice homosexuality will not experience the kingdom of God. So some people are arguing that that's a, a sort of homophobic way of reading the Bible. And that what Paul really means here is sort of aberrant forms of homosexuality, things like male prostitution or, or, or pedophilia. And so what I want to do is just actually take a few moments, because if this isn't something you've wrestled with, I'm, I'm sure you know someone who's, who's wrestled with this question. Is Paul saying here that men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God? So let's look at what Paul's saying. In the original Greek in which Paul was writing, he actually uses two words here to describe what he's, what he's talking about. So the ESV translates it, men who practice homosexuality, but Paul actually uses two words. The first word is the word malakoi, 
Uh, literally, it, it means the, a, a soft one, right? It was a word that would be used to refer to the, the passive member of a homosexual pairing. The second word Paul uses is arsenoiketai, all right? This is a word that Paul seems to have invented. We don't have an example of this word before 1 Corinthians. It gets used a lot afterwards, but it seems like Paul made this word up himself. And so if you'll just hang with me for a second, let me explain to you, I think, where Paul got this word and how that helps us understand what exactly it is that he's talking about. So when Paul uses this word here, arsenoiketai, it's a combination of two Greek words. The, the word arsen means man, like a male, and koite means bed. So literally, it would be something like a man who beds with other men. And so the question is, where did Paul come up with that word? Why does Paul think of this particular combination of words when he's trying to describe who exactly it is that doesn't get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, the answer is he gets it from the Old Testament. He gets these words particularly from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in Leviticus chapter 18, we read this. You shall not lie, now the Greek word is koite, with a male, arsen, as with a woman. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then at the beginning of Leviticus 20, uh, verse 13, it says this. If a man lies, koite, with a male, arsen, as with a woman, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. So Paul knew his Bible. And it seems like he's taking these two words that occur together in Leviticus, and he's sort of sticking them together to, to create a new word, to refer to a, a concept. I think the key thing for us to understand is it seems very clear that whatever it is Paul means here in 1 Corinthians 6, he means to forbid the exact same thing that Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 forbids. And so he goes back there and he gets these words from those verses. And so while many people, especially in the last 20 years, have tried to create some doubt about what Paul means here, there, there's no doubt whatsoever about what Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 mean. But it's very clear from the Hebrew there and then from the way those words get used throughout the rest of the Old Testament that Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 are forbidding homosexual practice. And so Paul, when he's trying to sort of think of a word to describe what it is he's trying to communicate here, grabs on to those same ideas. I think the ESV translation here, when it says men who practice homosexuality, I think that captures Paul's sense very well. So it's not the only sin on this list, we wouldn't say it's the most important sin on this list, but it's certainly the most controversial sin on this list uh, in our particular culture. Third, notice here Paul is saying that God is devoted and committed to doing away with sin. Because we might ask, why is it that people like this are not welcome in the kingdom of God? I mean, it sounds like it's kind of bad news that Paul is saying all kinds of people can't be with him in his future kingdom. I mean, don't we want God to be more inclusive? Don't we want God to be more tolerant? But I think if you step back and you see the bigger picture, you can see that this actually isn't bad news at all. Let me fast forward to the end of the Bible. Let me fast forward to the end of time, 
as we know it. Let me fast forward to that moment when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. Listen to what we read about that moment in the very last chapter of the Bible. It says in Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, that's the one we're living in right now, had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then skipping down to verse 8. It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So you see in that passage, there is incredibly good news. God is bringing about a world where he will live with us where we will dwell forever in his presence. And in that world, there will be no pain, no sadness, no tears. It's a place where even the memory of, of pain is a, a former thing. Recently, I was in New York City, and we went to the 9-11 Museum. And it was utterly overwhelming to experience and to be immersed in, and to be reminded of, and to see all of that pain and suffering, to be, to be reminded of the evil and the hatred that caused those events, to see all the, the suffering and sadness and fear that came in the wake of those terrorist attacks. The next day, we went to see a play that they've made out of Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, if you're familiar with that story, it's it's this powerful, gut-wrenching tale of racism and violence and injustice in a small southern town in the 1930s. And by the end of the play, I was maxed out on suffering. Like, I couldn't do more pain. Like, I just needed a break from all of the terrible things that people do to each other. Friends, the good news is God is going to bring about a world that will be, in so many ways, unlike this one. Imagine if we took all of the pain and all of the, the suffering that, that just the people in this room have experienced and we somehow were able to pile it up in some pile, right? All, all of the, the terrible things that have been done to us and then all of, add to that pile all of the terrible things that we have done to other people and just imagine how awful it would be to stare at that pile. And then just think how, how small a tiny fraction we are of, of everyone who's alive right now and everyone who's ever been alive. And, and when you think about it, this world, for all the, the good and wonderful gifts we experience, this world is a place of pain. It's a place of suffering. It's a, it's a place of, of sin. But not that world. 
That world is a place where everything is in harmony. Everything is perfect. Everything is as it's meant to be. Everyone is physically and emotionally and relationally just who they were created to be. Imagine a world like that. That's not a rhetorical device. I actually want you to picture a world like that in your mind for a second. And just think about how wonderful it would be to live in that world. And now imagine that thieves come into that world. And now greed is introduced. And now sexual immorality. And here come the revilers, the scoffers, the cursers. Now now here come the the drunkards and the swindlers. Everything about that new world would be ruined, right? That world would be just like this one, where we experience all of this pain and suffering. See, friends, it's good news that God is committed to getting rid of sin, that he's committed to banishing it, to, to keeping it out of the new heavens and new earth. Otherwise, we'd have no eternal hope except that 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 world will one day be just like this one. We'd have museums in that world devoted to terrorism. We'd have plays in that world about racism. Friends, notice also that this list of sort of sinful behaviors and sinful kinds of people, it's not the final word. Paul warns us that certain kinds of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're like me, you read that and you think, I'm in trouble, right? Looking at just this list, which isn't even comprehensive, I'm disqualified, like not once, not twice. But if Paul mentions 10 things here, like I've got almost all of them, right? I don't don't even need to know you to know that you're disqualified as well. If God is committed to keeping sin and wickedness out of the new heavens and new earth, he's got to be committed to keeping you and me out as well. If God were to let us into his kingdom, we'd ruin it, just like we've ruined this world. We'd bring our pride, our selfishness, our anger, our lust, our pettiness, and we'd spoil everything. But friends, there's such good news there in verse 11. Paul writes this to the Corinthians, and such, he says, were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, such were some of you. The only thing surprising there to me is that he says some, not all, right? He's probably just pulling out some of the sort of, sort of more spectacular sins on this list and reminding them that, yeah, like a, this was a bunch of you guys. But that's not the end. They were disqualified, but something happened to them. Paul says they were washed. They were spiritually cleansed from their moral filthiness. Paul says they were sanctified. We've already seen that in 1 Corinthians. They were made holy through faith in Christ. Paul says they were justified. They were declared not guilty before God. And so now their relationship to sin has changed It's no longer their identity. It's no longer who they are. Yes, they might still struggle with its presence. 1 Corinthians makes that clear. But sin wasn't their master anymore. Now they belong to Christ. See, the Lord Jesus died on the cross 
to bear the power and the penalty of the sin of all of his people. And he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And so now, by faith in Jesus, these Corinthians have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. They were cleansed, not by anything they did, but by God's gracious activity. They were prepared to inherit the kingdom. When that day comes, they will be there, finally and completely made perfect. See, friends, there are only two kinds of people sitting in this room this morning. There are the unrighteous, and there are those who have been washed, sanctified, and justified through faith in Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you are among the unrighteous who will not see the glorious kingdom of God. And friend, listen to me. I'm not saying you're worse than me or anyone else. I'm simply saying that you're still clinging tightly to your sin. And God is committed to keeping that sin out of his kingdom. But the good news, friend, is that you are welcome, even today, to turn. That if you will let go of those sins, if you will let go of all your unrighteousness, if you'll put your trust in Jesus, and no matter who you've been, you'll be cleansed. You'll be made an heir of God's kingdom. If you have questions about what that means, I'd encourage you not to let your conscience or fear or doubt or questions keep you away. I'd encourage you to talk to the person who invited you to come this morning. You can come talk to me after the service. I'd be delighted to talk to you more about how sinful and unrighteous people like you and me can be cleansed and saved and made fit for eternity with God. And for those of us who are already in Christ by faith, I hope you can see here in Paul's words a beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, we might be tempted in this day and age to make being a Christian about so many other things, but in the end it boils down to this, that we used to be all of these things. We used to be alienated from God without any hope that we would ever see his kingdom. But in his great love, God wanted you and me there with him. And so at his own expense, at the cost of his son, you and I have been washed and we've been delivered. If you've been made an heir of the kingdom by the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are going to make it to that great day in the new heavens and the new earth. So brothers and sisters, we get to live now in light of that truth. We get to let those realities control the way we think and feel and love today. So let's allow this reality to push its way into our hearts. Let it spur us to greater holiness. Let's live out our salvation in preparation for that day when we will be with Christ. Let's allow this truth to fuel our joy and our worship as we gather each week to celebrate together the love that God has for us, that he would go to such lengths to make rebels like us into heirs of his kingdom. Well, moving along, we see that Paul's point in this passage is to address yet another way that the Corinthians were living that made no sense in light of what God has done for them. In light of what God has done for them, in taking unrighteous people and fitting them for eternity with him, 
The Corinthians and the way they were living, it just made no sense. There in verses 7 and 8, Paul talks about the way the Corinthians were wronging and they were defrauding each other. Uh, The word that's translated as wrong there in verse 7, it's the same word that's translated unrighteous in verse 9. Paul's talking about the way these washed, sanctified, justified believers were still acting like the unrighteous. Paul's identifying this massive disconnect between who they are in Christ now and the ways that they're living. Look there in verses 1 to 6 where we get a, a description of what's going on. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? So Paul's taking issue here with the way that these church members are dealing with conflict and and grievances in their midst. It's hard to know exactly what the matter at hand was about, but it's obviously some kind of significant legal issue. There in verse 8, Paul says they wrong and defraud uh, each other. So it seems like in some way they're, they're ripping each other off. So we don't know the exact nature of the issue. We do know most disputes that were handled in, in uh, secular courts in those days were land disputes. So, so maybe our best guess would be that, that there's some sort of uh, fraud going on by one part of the church regarding land and boundaries or something like that. But whatever the issue is, Paul is not really concerned with the problem, but rather how it is that they're responding to it. It turns out that these believers were suing one another in secular courts. They were resorting to the the, the court system for arbitration and resolution. And so just like his reaction to the sexually immoral man in chapter 5, Paul can barely contain his disgust. There in verse 1, he's astounded that they dare go to law. And he gives his reason there in verse 2. It makes no sense for a believer to sue another believer in front of unbelievers. There in verse 2, Paul employs a logical device. He argues from the greater to the lesser. He says the saints will judge the world. And again, here by saint, Paul means any Christian, right? He's not talking about a special class of Christian. There in verse 3, he says that we are to judge angels. So there's this sense in which Christians will one day participate in God's judgment of the world. That might come as a surprise to you, but Paul seems to have already taught this to the Corinthians. He, he assumes they know it and understand it. There in verse 2 he says, or do you not know? As if they already do. We might not know exactly what it looks like for us to participate in the end time judgment or to judge angels, but Paul takes it for granted that it's so. And Paul says, if you're supposed to be sort of fit for this great task of of joining with God in judging the world, even judging angels, how is it that you can't handle land disputes amongst yourselves? He even shames them there in verse 5. He's like, I say this to your shame. It's kind of funny. If you remember back in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul's like really clear. He's like, look, I'm not trying to shame you here, right? I'm I'm just pointing something out. But here he's like, no, I'm shaming you. 
This is ridiculous. This is such a stupid issue. I can't stand it. Right? Can it be that there is not one person wise enough among you, he asks, to settle these disputes? You know, if you've been here for this whole series in 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul's dripping with sarcasm and irony there. Right? This church has been claiming such great wisdom for itself. Right? Back in chapter 4, verse 10, we saw that. They thought they were so wise, and they were so much wiser than Paul. And Paul says, really, you're, you can't find one person as wise as you are, not one person who you can ha- uh, rely on to handle these disputes. The great theologian Gerhardus Voss, he summarizes the problem in Corinth well. He, he says this. He says, there are two points of disapprobation on Paul's part. So strong disapproval. First, it's beneath the dignity of believers who formed, even in Corinth, the aristocracy of the spirit to submit their trivial differences to common pagans. Secondly, in seeking redress from pagans, they contemptuously pass by fellow believers as not wise or distinguished enough to settle points of difference which arose. In both respects, the reminder of their destiny to judge angels is made by Paul to serve as a corrective. From this we may gather that the future judging of the angels was not in the apostles' mind a negligible function. It required respectful recognition from Christian to Christian. A slight in connection to it deserved rebuke. See, it's the church's destiny to sit with God in judgment. And the actions of the Corinthians here drag that identity through the mud. It's it's simply beneath them. It'd be like the faculty of a prestigious law school having a dispute in their midst and taking it to the people's court. It just doesn't make sense. Are you serious? Not one of you can handle this matter? It's inappropriate. It's unseemly. It's just wrong. Part of God's redemption that he's achieved for us in Christ is that we will participate with him in the final judgment. And so lawsuits brought against members of the church before those who have no standing with the church is just incongruous. It doesn't make sense of what God's done. Paul wonders, how can it be that none of them is wise enough to handle this matter? How is it that they're reduced to taking these disputes before outsiders? How is it they could disrespect one another like this? You can sense Paul's frustration It feels like what's really undergirding everything is the question, how can you bring shame on the gospel like this? Right there in verse 7, Paul says the very fact that they have lawsuits amongst them, it's evidence that they're defeated already. The very existence of this fraud and this dispute, it was an issue for embarrassment. It was a defeat These things don't reflect well on the gospel. These things give ammunition to those outside the church, those who want to deride and mock the congregation of Jesus. You can just imagine the Corinthians saying, look, did you hear about these guys? They, They think they're so special, right? They're too good to come to the temple now and participate in worship. Right, they, they're too good now to participate in the prostitution that goes on at the temple. They're so special. But did you hear about the guy who ripped off the other guy? And then they couldn't even handle it themselves. They had to take it to court. Brothers and sisters, this means for us that we need to be committed to handling disputes and problems in the church. When they arise, we need to be committed to handling them appropriately and well. 
Conflict is not desirable, but it is perhaps inevitable on this side of eternity. But Paul warns us here about taking internal disputes and airing them before the world. The Lord Jesus himself gives us instructions in Matthew 18 and tells us how to handle disputes in the church. He says, if your brothers sinned against you, go to him. Go to them one-on-one. -on -one. Give them a chance to repent and reconcile. If he doesn't, keep the circle small. Take just one or two other people with you and try again. Try to resolve it with the smallest amount of sort of intervention possible. If that doesn't work, then you've got to take it to the church and, and have the whole congregation get involved in reconciling the issue. Jesus doesn't give us any option beyond that. He doesn't say, well, then you take it out into the world and you, you make it public. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm aware that it's possible to mishear what Paul's saying here. This does not mean that we never go outside the church for help. So some Christians have used Paul's words here as an excuse or a pretext for covering up abuse that's taken place in the church. But that is not at all what Paul is saying here. So if the building is on fire, right, we call the fire department. If someone breaks into the building, we call the police. If someone abuses a child we call the relevant authorities. Right? 1 Corinthians 6 is calling the church to exercise wisdom and to handle disputes and conflicts internally. Right? It's, it's, it's not saying that we never avail ourselves of resources outside the church when they're necessary. Right? The, the, the point here is not to air the church's dirty laundry, but it, it actually doesn't commend the gospel at all if we, if we cover up abuse and if we create a safe place for abusers in the church. What Paul's saying is to exercise wisdom and to handle disputes and conflicts internally. I think, sadly, this is a clear teaching most Christians just ignore when it's inconvenient. Just this week, there was a lot of news about a pastor in Georgia who wanted to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he filed a suit this week for three-quarters of a million dollars against uh, another person who used to work for the Southern Baptist Convention, right? And... and and his case is that he's been slandered, and he's had a loss of reputation and future earnings. Now, I obviously don't know all the facts there, but on the face of it, it's really hard to square those actions with what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians 6. I think it's worth pointing out also just how seriously Paul takes the local church. Now, Paul regards the church as the primary relationship in our lives. Right, the church is not a club to which you belong. It is, it is an identifying relationship. Right? The fact that you are part of a church should shape the way you live and shape your decision making. If there's conflict, you have a special responsibility to be reconciled with people in the church. I think this is, again, a, a foreign concept. Nowadays, we think of the church you attend something like you think about your coffee shop. Right? You probably have a preference. You may even be loyal to a certain, a certain brand or place. But if one arises that meets your needs better or appeals to your tastes more, or if something goes wrong at the one you're going to, you can just take your business elsewhere. But here Paul treats the church as if he assumes it's a central part of the Christian life. It is a, a primary relationship like the family. And so that's what Paul's driving at here in the first six verses. It's, it's good and it's fitting for the church to resolve its own business. As we wrap up this morning, I just want to step back as we conclude and just see the kind of one big principle that I think Paul wants them and us to take away from all of this and apply to our lives. 
And that is this sort of foundational idea that seems to be underlying all that Paul's saying here is this. You are not as important as the gospel. That is to say, your rights, your privileges are not as important as the gospel and the church's witness to it. I think if Christians understood this one thing, fairly easy to grasp, much more difficult to apply, I think we would see a radical transformation in our churches. Look there again in verse 7 and 8. Where, see what Paul says there. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. I think this is the heart of Paul's response to this particular problem in the church. He gives them some practical instruction. Look, quit it with the lawsuits, people. But there's a deeper issue. Paul's like, you're going to law. Isn't it better to be defrauded? Isn't it better, preferable, to be wronged rather than bring disgrace on the gospel? If it comes down to suffering harm personally or the gospel and the witness of the gospel suffering harm, Paul's saying it's a no-brainer. If it comes down to you being defrauded or the gospel being disparaged in front of unbelievers, Paul says how much better to be defrauded. Your love for the gospel, your love for the, the witness of the church should be such that you would throw yourself in the way of anything that threatens it. Friends, that's, you realize that's an attitude that's just simply consistent with the good news. Right? If you really understand that you are a sinner, that you're on that list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, that you have offended a holy and righteous God by your love for yourself, your disregard for God's ways, your, your self-worship, if you really understand that you are a drunkard, an idolater, an adulterer, and a reviler, like Paul talks about there in verses 9 to 10, if you really understand that a holy God has moved towards you in love, that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to live the holy life that you should have lived and to die in your place on the cross, taking the punishment that you deserve, if you really understood that, you would never assert your rights at the expense of the gospel. Right? When we adopt Paul's posture here, when we would rather be wronged, aren't we just doing what the Lord Jesus himself did? Aren't we just following his pattern? Aren't we just carrying the same cross? Right, think about what we're told about the Lord Jesus when he was wronged, when he was slandered, when he was mocked, when he was mistreated. In Matthew 27, verse 12, it says, when he, that is Jesus, was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Peter comments in 1 Peter chapter 2, When he, that is Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, the Lord Jesus cared more about doing the will of his father. He cared more about accomplishing our salvation than he cared about his own reputation and his own well-being. Right? If we understood something of his love and humility, we would be much more willing 
to be, to endure, we'd be much more willing to endure being wronged rather than ever put a barrier between someone and the gospel message. But it wasn't just Jesus. This was Paul's approach as well. In 1 Corinthians 9, Lord willing, when we get there, he's going to document for us all of the ways he gave up his rights in order to serve the Corinthians. Right? He, he didn't take any money from them, even though he was entitled to it. But he, he worked and supported himself with his own hands because he knew the Corinthians were suspicious of him. And he didn't want to give them any reason to doubt or disbelieve the message. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew so that I might win some Jews. To the Gentiles, I lived like a Gentile so that I could win the Gentiles. Paul's like, I will do whatever. I will suffer whatever I have to suffer in order to get the message out. For Paul, this gospel, this good news, this message of a savior on the cross, it has first priority in our lives. When we follow Jesus, everything else takes a back seat. And so if you find yourself in a situation where in order for you to be treated fairly, your actions will reflect negatively on the gospel, you should rather be treated poorly. Again, to be clear, this doesn't mean you're allowing people to sin against you without doing anything about it. Right? Jesus gives us a pattern for handling these kinds of things. It's not saying we ought to let predators and abusers go unchecked in our midst, sort of hiding in our church. Right? Doing that wouldn't protect or commend the gospel at all. The idea here is that we have a posture personally of being willing to suffer wrong in order to commend the gospel. And brothers and sisters, this is hard. And I think it's especially hard for those of us who are Americans because we love our rights. I mean, we are taught from day one to love our rights and to stand for our rights and to fight for our rights. And if we feel like someone's imposing something on us that we don't like, we feel like we have the right to freak out. But we should be people who are more concerned with the reputation of Christ before the world and before one another. We should be willing to suffer all kinds of wrongs and indignities without complaining and without lashing out without resorting to lawsuits and conflicts. We should be willing to suffer wrong at the hands of unbelievers in such a way as to commend Christ to them. So ask yourself, when your brother or sister offends you, or when your neighbor's dog digs in your garden, or when your coworker's laziness makes your life difficult, when the government requires you to do something you don't really want to do, are you more concerned about your rights or about the honor of Christ? and the reputation of the gospel. Do you complain? Do you, do you bitterly moan? Do you demand what you deserve? Friends, thank God he didn't give us what we deserve. Thank God Jesus suffered wrong so that we didn't get what we deserve, what we've earned, what's fair. So what would it, what would it take? What would need to change in your heart for you to have an attitude more like Jesus's in this regard? What, what would you need to confess and get rid of in your life so that you could reflect Paul's unselfish concern for the gospel? I think our behavior when we're wronged will tell us pretty much everything we need to know about what we really think about Jesus. And it will speak volumes to your friends and your family and your coworkers and your neighbors and your brothers and sisters in the church. 
And so let's come together now to the Lord's table in that light. Because what we need is a, is a greater appreciation for all that we have in Christ. So that the other things this world might offer to us, things that we might be able to get and achieve and secure through, through litigation and fighting and quarreling, let's let those things become small as our salvation becomes greater. We come to the table to have communion with the risen Lord Jesus. We come in faith that we are washed and sanctified and justified because of his body broken and his blood shed for us. We meet Jesus at his table and our imaginations are shaped, our appetite for the gospel is sharpened. This is where we come and we remind ourselves of what is most real, of what will endure into eternity, what is infinitely more important than our reputation and our rights. And so let's pray, and then we'll celebrate together. Gracious Father, we rejoice in your love for us, that though we were once rebels against you, though we were deep in unrighteousness and sin, you in your great love rescued us, helped the helpless, saved those who could not save themselves. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, we praise you for the way you patiently endured being wronged for our sake, how you endured the cross for the joy that was set before you. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you make our salvation greater to us? You have washed us. You have sanctified us. You have justified us. Spirit, would you come and help us to live in ways that make sense of these truths? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.